Some thoughts and reflections always begin with uh, paying homage to the Buddha. And I uh, have a shrine here, Buddha, Buddha image on it, and you pay respect to the Buddha. And so, really, I try to teach in line with uh, uh, the attitudes, the view of the Buddha. Uh, it's an Indian person. From um, a few thousand years ago, so part of uh, someone brought up in this uh, Indian culture, Indian religious view. Mm-hmm. So, the language that he uses, although it's he has often really investigated and adopted the phrases, there's always nothing, no word that the Buddha used he created by himself. They're all words that were around. You may have amplified them or given them a new slant, but they're all references um, to to the way that um, people understood or experienced reality. And these words don't always exactly uh, translate, so we do the best we can. Also, try to teach in line with the way the Buddha taught, mm-hmm. which is a kind of step-by-step process. Definitely not exactly a technique as such, though one can employ techniques, but techniques to be employed in line with a particular progressive process. This is the way he taught, and he often teach in different, slightly different ways depending on where people were at. Um, but it's always step by step, we go from this to that to this to that. The sense being that as one enters one, takes on one step and process, dwelling in that, abiding in that, deepening into that, it makes the next one open up and available. And so then there's a fruition from one to another, to another, to another, to another, an ongoing fruition uh, uh, that the earlier factors support later factors, though it's not exactly mechanical. Um, and, but they all remain valid. Mm-hmm. It's not like that's finished now. It remains valid just as the source of a stream remains, that source remains valid at the estuary. <laughs> it's, it's the same stream running through from the source of the spring to the estuary. It's the same, essentially it's the same river flowing through, gathering more currents as it goes along and gathering strength. But the source remains still essential. Um, so the aim of the, the Buddha um, sought was uh, liberation of citta, purification of citta, the freedom of citta. 
So this was an ongoing quest at the time. The sense being that since we seem to be in a system, in a body that's subject to aging, birth and death, why? Well, hey, this is not a good state to be in. <laughs> How do you get out of this? Is there a way out of this? Is there, is there an alternative to this? Is something else? And recognition of, yeah, there's this certainly sensory condition, but also that something can be aware of that. There's some kind of intelligence that's knowing that, and perhaps even alarmed by it, and, and confused by it, and, and uh, trying to make it better. Uh-huh. So there's something else there, right? There's something else we might call our person or ourself. You know? That's the way it seems to be. And the Buddha, they've often referred to this as chitta. We might also call it our mind or our heart or our spirit or our soul, if you like. Something there that's aware and receptive to this, what we call our consciousness, you know. But uh, the Buddha used term the time was chitta, uh, which means some sense of being aware, being conscious, being aware. He said the freedom of this, the liberation of this, is that which is to be sought. And everything else is a skillful means to that end. So mindfulness, concentration, samadhi, wisdom, mindfulness of breathing, all are useful for the liberation of that, for that liberation of chitta. And it's also to bear in mind that these terms themselves were available at the time, and the Buddha said you can get them right or you can get them wrong. You can have such a thing as wrong mindfulness, wrong samadhi, wrong view, wrong speech. Wrong speech is very easy to understand. Wrong mindfulness. Hmm. I thought mindfulness is good. Well, yeah, right, wrong. You know, or not well placed, you might say, or not correctly aligned, missing the point. You know, when it is not a, not conducive to liberation of chitta, one wonders how could that possibly be the case. <clears throat> this is often because of the not true, real. Uh, understanding or realization of what chitta refers to. So with English we use the word mind, sometimes heart, sometimes awareness. Once you use a word for something, it makes it an object that we can, okay, it's my mind. Uh, my mind is like this, my mind is like that. But in that very action, what's happening is one is being aware of the mind, aren't we? So if we're saying the quality of chitta is that which is aware, then the mind is not the chitta. So if awareness is that which notices and recognizes and is sensitive to experience, any kind of experience that's had as something happening, that's not it. It has its relevance, of course. Because what we most obviously can operate with and 
you know, affect are these uh, to a degree our bodies, our minds, our mind states, our words and thoughts. We have some say over them, but not that much. Really. Even your language, English language, terminologies. What words are most frequently used? What are the attitudes that come in with those words and languages? Mm-hmm. Myself, what attitudes and feelings come in with that term? Myself, different from others. Uh, want to make it good and right and better and happier and more comfortable with others. So all these nuances come in with that. This experience of self is therefore pretty volatile and fragile and vulnerable and, you know, sort of that demanding and unsatisfied. So, you know, better to just put that one on hold for a while. (laughs) Now it's difficult because it keeps coming back in again. It's referred to as an aware of a mind, aware of mind processes, aware of what we call mind, which is generally the thoughts, the impressions that are flowing through awareness. We call that my mind, but you realize that though your mind may seem very familiar, it's actually never one thing or another, it's always changing. Always fluid, bubbling, bristling, wavering, trembling, expanding, contracting. What? It's not a thing at all, is it? It's a it's a process that has a certain familiarity to it. It's a dynamic process that's a certain familiarity to it that seems to reiterate. And in this, we begin perhaps, if we consider that, recognize this itself as an indication that something is stuck. It keeps reiterating, and it keeps wanting and not wanting. It never really achieves that state of eliminating the unpleasant and acquiring the pleasant and yet it's stuck in that habit of doing so. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice to liberate this? Stop this, not an entity, but bring a habit, a reflexive habit, bring that to ceasing. So, you know, the sometimes confusing language for us is the Buddha talking about ceasing as being something one should aspire to. (laughs) It means the ceasing of this continual restless unsatisfied habit that we call our mind is actually a set of immaterial processes that are moving on and on and going round and round and not achieving anything final. And we can be aware of that. 
there is somewhat dukkha, unsatisfactory, disappointing, frustrating, suffering, being aware of that experience. But that experience is not really your mind. These are, we call these mental factors or mental states or mental behaviors. And we can be aware of those. This jitta then is the liberation from being involved with those habits. Now, one of the things that the time people at the time sensed and was concerned with was this jitta seems to be stuck inside this body. When it dies, when this body dies, where does it go to? Yeah. It's in here, in the sense world. You got sights and sounds coming in on it. Where does it go when this all breaks down? As we notice it, where does it go? And there are various analogies in the suttas where, you know, they, they weigh living bodies and dead bodies to see what, you know, how much does a chitta weigh? You know, now it's gone out <laughs> and they can't find much difference. And well, what it kind of thing is. And then nobody's actually seen it go out of the body. So what's the, they can't quite figure this out. Whether there's, but it stops existing at death or whether it kind of exists somewhere else, or somewhere between the two. So these are the kind of big issues of the spiritual seekers of the day. And the Buddha said, well, you can't call this thing an entity that either is in the body, or leaves the body, or is somewhere else apart from the body. You can't call it an entity. This is the problem. You call it an entity, you imagine it is somewhere, therefore where does it go? And, he, and the Buddha was, was a very skilled um, teacher and used many, many, many striking metaphors and images. He says, you know, I can't find a single metaphor I can use to describe what chitta really is. <laughs> and that's quite a statement because he seemed to be able to describe everything with some not striking um, fluency and accuracy and sometimes deeply stirring images, I can't find a word for this. All you know is it, it just changes so quickly. It's just, you cannot nail it down to anything, it's just so evanescent. This is what he said. So, so rather than being a thing, and here I will attempt to do what the Buddha couldn't do and prove that I can't do it either. <laughs> <laughs> But just for the sake of playing with a few ideas, you imagine you had a, a balloon with, and you blew a load of smoke into the balloon, right? And so you say, oh look, there's a grey balloon, because maybe it's a clear balloon with grey smoke in it. That's a grey balloon. So, where does this, if I burst the skin of the balloon, where does this spherical greyness go to? Yeah? If you've got a spherical a balloon, a spherical balloon full of grey smoke. If you cut the, the rubber of the balloon, where does this grey sphere go to? It's ridiculous. It doesn't go in. It just kind of dissolves, doesn't it? <laughs> so, yeah. 
And so this kind of analogy sometimes is used. So they said there must be a universal smoke, that the grey smoke fits into the universal smoke. It's not really a self, but it's this kind of substance that merges with the infinite. That's a little more attractive, isn't it? But the Buddha said, well, maybe, 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 maybe. Just look at that smoke. Is it pleasant? It kind of stings the eyes, doesn't it? It's turbulent. What if that smoke was purified and clarified and settled? So it lost its smokiness, it just became something like air. Clear. Would that feel better? Oh yeah, that feels better. What if it settled down completely and became less turbulent? How would that feel? Oh, that feels really good. So that thing, that experience where there's no movement, no colour, no flavour, no entity, it feels good. Where does it go? It doesn't go anywhere. Because it stopped going. <laughs> so, essentially, the Buddha felt this line of argument was pointless. <laughs> Speculate where it goes to, where it is, where it isn't. So the main thing is to notice you don't like smoke in your eyes. <laughs> stings and begin to stop burning fire (laughs) then you don't get the smoke and then you don't get the stinging effect stop stirring things up and you don't get the turbulence and the the pressures and the pushing and the pulling you don't get the acrid flavours and the heat and the fluctuations you stop doing that's what you can do do that and so our practice or the practice recommended was not to create as I just attempted to do some metaphysical exposition of the nature of mind and where it goes but just feel the experience that you can experience and start to recognize you don't like smoke and you don't like turbulence this can be quite itself is fairly, you know, challenging because there's some quite pleasant flavours in that, odours in that smoke. And sometimes the turbulence is kind of interesting. So there's a sense in which there has to be like a loss of appetite. Or, you know, and again, this sounds rather disappointing. When the Buddha says, "Well, you want to you want to re- get to this state of complete um, disillusionment with it all, <laughs> or disenchantment, nipida, you've had enough." That sounds very nice. No, no, it just means you've had enough of smoke. Uh, yeah, uh, you feel the cleanness and the stillness is more exquisite. And this isn't something you can force, but it's like keep reintroducing awareness to these experiences and it begins to change its appetite. Now the other quality to remember in all this jitta is intelligent. It doesn't mean um, it's necessarily got all the answers. 
but it, is, it has the seed of intelligence, which is the ability to receive an impression, linger upon it, feel it out, and respond. And say so that is intelligence. It's not the amount of words one has, that's knowledge. It's not even the ability to arrive at a solution rapidly, that's education. And you know, education tends to conduct you towards the answers that the educator wants you to find. <laughs> it's, not an, it's not an unbiased system. The educator wants you to solve the problem that he or she has placed there for you, whether it's useful to you or not. And much education is geared towards job creation, work, productivity, not towards the illumination of the spirit, is it? How many of us got really taught how to be humans? We got taught how to be functions, but to be illuminated beings, you do that first grade, second grade, fifth grade, <laughs> illuminated, purified beings, not part of the educational system. So, this, this intelligence is not a matter of education in that respect, nor is it a matter of knowledge, it's a matter of awareness, sensitivity, and something that we all have already. We already have that. Uh, It's there. And in fact, my suggestion is, a lot of the time we have to de-educate ourselves because all that becomes clutter, like obscuring, uh, biasing, driving, programming towards words, ideas, finalities, instead of realization here and now. So there is this intelligence, and we might say, to reframe it again, the um, aim and modality of our practice is to awaken intelligence, true intelligence, to purify awareness so it's no longer cluttered, obscured, driven, uh, you know, corrupted by acquisition, acquisitive drives, and so forth. Because it feels uncomfortable that way. Hungry. Awakening intelligence, realizing the chitta, liberating the mind. And these are terms that were used and can be used to talk about what the Buddha was aiming at. This was then the big topic of the day, and I think it still is a big topic. This chitta then is not the thinking mind, not an object at all, but the very subject the subject behind ourself, you could say. Mm-hmm. One that's aware of ourself, 
the quality that's aware of movement, of sound, of feeling, that is receptive, sensitive, responsive, yeah, often trembling, easily driven, uh, sometimes seeking orientation. It's not awakened, but it is intelligent. Yeah. So we start to you know, touch into that and begin to remove. So this is a tremendous uh, act of faith or in fact the confidence of the awakened one to realize that mostly what you need to do is remove. So as you begin to realize perhaps this whole process is not a matter of entities becoming liberated or entities existing at all, but dynamic processes that are turbulent and distressing being brought to cease. And how is the processes that are disturbing and unsettling brought to cease, cessation, through another dynamic? another set of dynamics that encourage and do not feed the fires that keep them going, keep the smoke burning, keep the smoke rising. The dynamic process is called you know, is cooling. <laughs> uh, cooling, cooling the fire is the phrase, often the phrase that was used, the mind all is burning, the Buddha says. The eye is burning, the ear is burning. Burning with what? Greed, hatred, delusion. One who sees this becomes cool, the fires go out. There's no reckoning for this person. Cannot say where they are. They are beyond location. They've gone beyond death. So there's a dynamic that we enter we incline towards. And uh, the sequence of these, you're probably familiar with the Eightfold Path. Um, another sequence I'll bring to mind. You know, the Buddha referred to, this is like a, uh, called the graduated teaching. And it's, and it's very much a matter of suggesting how do you see it? And so that's how do you see generosity, giving, dana. And again, this word dana is a little more than giving, it also means sharing. Sharing, giving, mutuality. And what enables that? What kind of intelligence in us, what is intelligence in us that feels cooler, more enjoyable, less cluttered, less awkward in the presence of generosity? This is Sitta. It feels happier in this particular mode where giving, giving and being given to. And so this is actually much more in line with reality in that we were given bodies. Bodies were given, earth is given, air is given, water is given, breath is given, life is given. And in our lives we can give. We can give to others, we can give to our friends, our partners, our children, our animals, our dogs, our planet. We can give, we can give. 
And in this, there's a feeling of being in truth, something flowing through. As I'm given to, I give. And giving is a happy experience because it begins to remove one of these self-boundaries, which is about hoarding and being independent. And we may disapprove of hoarding, although it's a very common uh, habit for human beings, as you recognize, uh, because of fear of losing. Because if you live in a situation of non-giving, nobody give me anything, I better make sure I've got my own stuff. Yeah. And that's how it starts. So we start operating like that, and you get into a society or a culture where that becomes the norm, you know, and even stigmatized to, to you know, you expect other people to give you things. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Why shouldn't I? <laughs> I give. What's wrong with that? <laughs> you know, somehow that's a stigma, isn't it? You're lazy, you're useless, you're feeble, you're inadequate. Yeah. And so we have to get past that one. Say, well, look, how much money did your mother's womb ask you for for nine months free rent? You know? <laughs> The nursing fees, you know, putting a bill. So you, you kind of three years old and you get your $30,000 bill. <laughs> it's going ridiculous, isn't it? And yet we kind of adopt this. Oh, yeah, okay. We're born to work. Really? You know, and that's not the Indian mindset. Born to work? No, no, you're born to do your dharma, your duty, which is to serve and to respect, and to, you know, and to exhibit good qualities towards others, and to play one's part in the human cultivation. It's not working for a living, it's serving, and, you know, and, and communing, and fitting in, and, and finding um, beautiful responsibilities towards each other. And of course part of that is being able to be given to without feeling embarrassed or feeble because somebody gives me something. And this kind of culture, just to reflect on that, and you see, oh, this is not the way we operate, is it? Oh dear, you know. And what does that do? You know, it's, it's like something has been radically shifted here. To which that whole quality is somewhat stigmatized. You know? Buddha was a communist, obviously. <laughs> the ultimate evil. I think he was. <laughs> In some respects. Yeah. Or, you know, he was, a, he was a bum. He didn't work for a living. Outlaw. Lived in the forest. So you see how the language can even stigmatize this, this quality. But then you taste it yourself. Yeah, and the opportunity to experience that giving, being given to giving, being given to it's rather relaxing isn't it when we can just ease into that no longer feel so awkward or apologetic or is this enough mm-hmm. the right thing the giving is giving that's the beautiful thing so we start to really encourage dynamic relational qualities rather than materiality. So rather than 
this item that I'm giving, it's this quality that I'm enabling. I'm enabling this quality to operate in the world. So this is more the way to review it. And clearly one can't have a giving without a giver, a gift, and someone to be given to. So this binds people together in a way in which it's expected to be mutual. And certainly early, most early societies operated in that way until kind of capitalism took over. There's always a sense this is your duty as a human being to give and to be given to and to share. This it binds us together in a non-competitive way. Mm-hmm. So this very much in, in the culture. So you touch into that and say, oh yes, well that, that which enjoys that quality, that we'll call chitta. And it's sensitive, it's aware, and it experiences comfort and happiness with that. Because it's coming out of the boundary of selfhood, whether I deserve it or not. Whether it's good enough. There's a linger in that, experience that, release yourself into that, relax into that, don't be nervous about that. Mm-hmm. And then, with this, it says the quality of sila, morality or integrity or mutual respect arises. Mutual respect arises. Because now we've established a mutuality relationship in a joyful, happy way. So mutual respect arises. And it's mutual. This means we do not abuse, we do not violate, we don't take things that are not offered, uh, we don't mishandle each other verbally, physically, sexually. These sorts of things that we cultivate so that what is the what is the fundamental property behind that is nothing people starts with people are not treated as objects of my wish. They're not objects of my will, my desire, my aversion. They are subjects. And therefore, as to them, as to myself. To them, as to myself. How would it be, what do you feel like to be in her shoes, in his shoes? That kind of sense. And, yeah, respect. And from that, a kind of uh, sensitivity occurs. And so that which can enjoy, and which can tune to that, and feel a sense of clarity and with that, and a sense of orientation within that, a sense of guidance within that, that we'll call chitta. And again, it tends to reduce the boundaries of self, because once other humans are not objects, the subject changes. It's no longer domineering, it's no longer fearful towards others, it's no longer um, looking down on others, it's no longer feeling intimidated by others, it's no longer trying to make sure others like me. 
It's these kind of things because it's dwelt in the sense of respect and that's my orientation. And um, so this is is a very profound uh, realization to dwell in, to linger in, to get the full meaning of. It's not just about obeying rules so you won't get punished. There's no punishment. In in in, in in Buddhism, there's no punishment. So because you punish yourself through all the contortions and twisting and corruptions that you then take on, so it's a, <coughs> so it's, it's a joy to be able to cultivate this quality. Uh, feel cleaner, clearer more respectful of myself and others, got a firmer ground. Sila sets you upright. That's associated with what we call the uprightness. So when Metta Sutta, let them be able and upright, straightforward. What does that mean? Gentle in speech. This is Sila. Look at yourself in the mirror. Look at your heart in the mirror. And we cultivate this towards other humans, towards other creatures, and towards our own body and mind. So this sense of no longer dominating, abusing, averse to, uh, trying to push it around, but respect. When you take this very fully, you're beginning to get a very good guideline for any kind of action including action towards what you call yourself. Naturally from this kindness, goodwill, there's a natural quality that arises once that respectful relationship has occurred. This is the heart's nature. Once you establish, when you put it in the right direction, chitta, when it sits there, begins to bring forth by itself, without being commanded to, it naturally begins to bring forth joy with dana and love with sila. I mean, real love, not just romance and affection, but real sense of warm-heartedness and an openness towards other beings. So, it doesn't say you've got to love everybody. <laughs> no, no. And what you can do is keep remembering and tuning to chitta, the rest of it happens by itself. This is how skillful states, once induced or recognized, are supportive and by themselves generate further skillful states and to abide in those skillful states, to deepen into them, to rejoice in them, to take them in. This is the process called absorption, jhana. And we may always see jhana referred to as this is when you get into very still meditative experience but actually it's a con- it's a refrain that runs through the teaching the buddha says jayati bhikkhu means absorb bhikkhus and what he's meaning is absorb all skillful states and that will lead to what you call jhana it's absorbing the skillful states will lead to the elimination of unskillful states 
that by itself, without an act of the will, that by itself will, will bring around quality of samadhi, just as sila brings around the quality of love, so the jhana, the absorbing process, by itself brings around the quality of stillness and happiness, which we call samadhi. So you don't do samadhi, you do jaya, you absorb into the skillful, and the result of that is this fruition. Just as you don't do love, you do respect, and love arises, trust arises. Because right? that's is the nature of chitta. We're not dealing with some kind of instrument that has no quality of its own. We're awakening it to its true qualities, putting it in conducive channels. And so the Buddha then went on to say, well, you know, though most people would acknowledge that, you know, it's better to live in a world where people aren't slaughtering each other, stealing things and cheating on each other, but people do. <laughs> Why? So because of sense desire. Big thing. Yeah, or just desire. Yeah, yeah. More, more, more. We get locked into what pleasure can do. You know, we all experience pleasure, happiness, Pleasant, some experiences are pleasant. It's like that. <laughs> but what occurs with that is a kind of is a fastening on it or clinging, and it gets to be the occasion, the state whereby that clinging becomes a kind of lock. It clings, and it, as it clings, it feels slightly more restricted and less secure because it's locked. The heart is now locked. It's no longer in that free, open state feels locked, so it feels not quite full because it's closed. Therefore, what it needs to do is get some more. So it clings some more. It still doesn't feel quite good enough yet. So it puts some cling a bit more get more. It's still not quite complete yet, so a little bit more will do it. It's still stuck. You don't realize the joy comes from letting go. Pleasure pass through, and just the freedom of that itself is sublimely sweet. And it can be the case this lot becomes so habitual when there really is no need at all for more, when you have a billion, I don't know how you could spend a billion, but some people can, I guess. How you, why you need ten billion? I don't see what you can do with that. To use it, but you still a little bit more would be good. Or you just get interested in the experience of accumulating. So it's not like even the object is that important, so much as the energy of I can accumulate more. It gives me a feeling of power, interest, happiness, because I'm accumulating more. 
I guess this is the wealthy person's disease. Where the mind shifts its orientation to the experience of the glowing experience of more and more, an unbridled movement towards the more. Maybe that's it. So this is really uh, a disease, a rash, an inflammation, because what's lost is the sharing and the respect and the mutuality. Uh, saying, Buddha is saying, this is such a disease and such a, you're so prone to it. Uh, it's such an, it's such a plague and we're so, uh, you know, susceptible to it, says, you see the peril and the danger of it. So you develop renunciation. And you start to shift your orientation away from the, that movement that more will be better to less need is better. It's a kind of less need is better. Shifting it back. First of all, less want is better, definitely. And as you get to experiencing some of that, it's a graduated process, that sense of being a little more Agile and adaptable. It doesn't have to be quite the best. It feels freer, doesn't it? Lighter. And gradually, the, that which can attune to sensitivity itself, awareness itself being more important than the sense object or even the glow that runs through it with pleasure. You know, and you begin to get the sense this is what renunciation is about. It's a shift. It's not saying there's no such thing as pleasure, not saying there's no such thing as sense, sense contact or that it's wrong, but just there's a peril, there's a danger in there. So we let the pleasant pass through. And of course, this is operating this way is tremendously remedial because, of course, the other feature of it is the pain of the sense world <laughs> which again one locks on to fights with and, and it still find, probes its way in doesn't it <laughs> it still comes digging in and we lock on it and wrestle it down and pummel it and wriggle around with it so you see, if you can develop that lightness around pleasure it could be that the, that the mind would also develop that release around pain and let that pass through without getting stuck in it and miserable and oppressed and wounded and offended and struggling and resentful about it that would be a blessing because pain's going to get you anyway not just physical pain but discomfort and not just physical discomfort but emotional discomfort you realize, particularly, um, how emotionally uncomfortable people get, psychologically uncomfortable. And this is certainly very apparent in our consumer societies, where 
you know, compared with the lifestyle of ancient India, people live in, in heaven, surely. You know, soft chairs you can sit back on, on the dirty old earth floor. Soft chair, I mean, why could you want anything more than this? <laughs> you know, hot water on tap. Oh, wow. Well, we go down to the stream and filter it out and get the bugs out of it. Oh, this is bliss, surely we're in heaven. And, you know, all kinds of amazing foods, not just kind of a handful of rice. You know, this is busty bliss by now. It isn't. <laughs> because without, you know, without the blessing of Dana and Sila, the mind is not happy. And so we get this emotional discomfort of not feeling given to, of not being able to receive gifts, of not feeling loved or loving in a truly open way, of not feeling respected or respectful. It means very psychologically, emotionally very uncomfortable because of that. I think one of the most shocking experiences, certainly when I went to India, was not just the poverty, but the happiness. Japanese poor people look so happy. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that their lot was admirable, or but they still look quite joyful, cheerful, humorous, giggling, sharing things, playing with each other, you know, fooling around, kicking around in the streets. You know, I'm all kind of uptight in my little secure box of well, I'm thinking about thinking, oh, will I get this? Will I get that bus going? <laughs> You know, I might get sick and something might steal something off me. Good gracious, these people just because you know, <laughs> they had they had a, a sense of communality, giving, sharing, you know, things of this nature. I'm sure they had all kinds of problems as well, but you know, you start to see it doesn't add up, does it? And so the renunciation is there not as an impoverished program, but a shifting to where one's happiest, most free, most open uh, possibilities are. So you know, if you do that, and develop that, and resolve into that, so all these things become invitations, you investigate, you firm up in them, you feel them good, you start to resolve. Which means you meet the challenges that come up. You know, the little furtive pieces that want you to Kind of wiggle the seed a little bit and adjust that raw tad and easier. You're living in a, in a very highly um, uh, sealer system, monks vineyard, you're always, always this is possibility of mind trying to find loopholes and wriggle round things. You can kind of square that one a bit be more convenient. You can feel this mind like a, they call the eel wriggling mind. The eel wriggling is one thing in the hair splitting. It's exactly that, that's right, that's wrong, the legal mind and the wriggler. You see these two qualities. This is not awakened intelligence, is it? <laughs> it's just and getting all this is right, this is wrong, you know. <laughs> and stuff. So no, this is not intelligent. And so, you know, there's a challenge is the main. Of course, the big challenge of renunciation is do I have to give up that pleasure? 
to have to have to experience that pain. And the sound of that is not so comfortable. This is the challenge. But certainly, you know, in my own mind, I'm just ordinary human being. You know, certainly, you know, entering a monastery, that's more or less, that's the deal. And, you know, first, clearly one is up for that for a while. And then naturally the pressures come on. And being deeply impoverished because one can't have this, that and the other on tap when one wants it. And deeply neglected because it's uncomfortable. And you want to wriggle it, shift it, tweak it, make it, plan it, figure out how you could make it better. Find a way round, find a way out, find a way to avoid. And suddenly this, this all this wriggling around is just dang right uncomfortable and it's pretty undignified. <laughs> Just be with it. <laughs> just be with it and just you know, grow stronger with that. Grow more resolute with that. And this this is, you know, very powerful because this is really pressing or putting on hold the most powerful forces in the universe, pleasure, pain. We obey those. And to begin to, so if you can start to at least put a handbrake on those, or at least a gear shift on them, to subtler forms of pleasure, such as the pleasure of, of, uh, kindness, or the pleasure of meditation, shift the gear, then you're ready for the Four Noble Truths. And then you taught Four Noble Truths. Which is, yeah, there is Dukkha. Dukkha has to be understood, not avoided, not complained about, not wriggled round, not blamed on somebody else. Although those are all definitely conceivable possibilities with some reasonable enough justification for them has to be understood. Hmm. Means pause, stand, sit, open. How is that? The pressure, the pushing, what kind of reactions come up? Within that you see there's something, a wellspring of this dukkha, something that's creating those pushing forces called craving. Craving to be something, craving to have something, craving to get somewhere, craving to get away from something, craving to not be who one feels one is, and so forth. So you know, this craving can be, is an arising quality, with a sense of dispassion towards that, and towards the objects it creates, a cooling, a disenchantment, towards the objects it creates, it dangles in front of our eyes, or our nose, or our bodies, or our minds. One becomes less entranced by that, the glow of the possibility, then you begin to put out the fire, dies down by itself. Because you don't have to 
stamp it out. You just see through the glowing glitter that craving presents. It's always not here yet. But if you did this, you get it. Yeah? There's, there's the sparkly thing that our mind is drawn towards. Yeah? And you say, I don't want it. Because I don't like that movement that never gets me there. Yeah? And you become disenchanted with that. And so through the disenchantment, that in itself withdraws the wellspring of craving. So you don't stop craving, you stop believing in it. You don't stop craving, you stop believing in it. You stop believing in the objects, the fantasies that it conjures up. You don't stop craving, you stop believing in the objects it creates. That's the process. And that's how craving comes to cessation by itself, begins to fade. Just as, you know, if you watch a conjurer and you begin to see how she or he is doing her act, you get less interested in it. You don't have to shoot them or <laughs> get annoyed with them. What? He's got a rabbit up his sleeve. Nobody can see that. There's nothing there. She's just waving her hands. There's nothing there. How much do ones believe in the objects called the future? How much do you believe in that? The objects called myself, other people. The object saying, you could be better if. Recognizing as we understand dukkha more fully, this is, the sense world is a world that is beset with it. It's uncomfortable, it's too hot, too cold, too hard, too soft, too dry, too wet. <laughs> It smells wrong. <laughs> Too noisy. <laughs> and I had a, a very powerful shift when I, in the first year or so when I was in the monastery, they decided they were going to open um, an ordination hall. Which they hadn't, which is a big thing for the monastery, so they could give these uh, acceptance ceremonies, admission ceremonies. So they'll make because this was not a a forest monastery, which is more serious. This is a monastery on the edge of a town. So the idea was let's have a big festival to commemorate this event. How wonderful! This is the one time this is going to happen. So let's have a festival. And I was living in a meditation hut in the monastery. And they, they were having a festival. Before this, I'd got a little bit annoyed. That occasionally there'd be some sounds coming into my kuti from <laughs> occasional loudspeaker, be a PA system saying something or the other. Or I get annoyed with the frogs. 
and what, what, what when I'm trying to meditate? <laughs> and I get annoyed with the PA system for disturbing me. And then we had this first, we went on for 11 days. <laughs> and uh, they, had, they had movie theatres set up, so there were four movie screens playing in the out, outdoors. There's constant 24-hour sounds of all kinds of movies, music playing, going on. And then announcements, constant announcements, 24 hours a day for 11 days. And so you're waiting for it to stop. It's not going to stop. And so you can't not hear it's very loud. And you're sitting in this realm of sound day and night. You lie down in it, you get up in it, you bathe in it, you move in it. Everything is sound, 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 sound. And not wanting it. And it was like a hard floor that I'd lie down on with just a rattan mat with no mattress. The boy doesn't want it. And eventually you begin to recognize the floor is not going to give. You have to give. (laughs) And after a while you recognize the sound is not going to stop. You have to stop. (laughs) These are not rational commands. It's something you begin to give up. And then this quiet center opens up. There's this quiet presence within. Simple, steady, quiet, voiceless, cool presence. Sound moving around. It wasn't something I did, it's something I stopped doing. Stop fighting, stop manipulating, stop, if only, stop when this ends, stop, why should I? Just stop, stop, stop. And it takes a while until eventually it's been pushed and the self-program has been pushed into a corner until it can no longer operate and then bonk, awaken intelligence and it's like this now. So? <laughs> it didn't even say that really, it's just the quietness. that's that's what it's about that's what all this stuff is about moments like that and you find right in the middle of it all right in the middle of it all when you stop the abusing and the manipulating and the all that you find this quiet center now now you can meditate because you can find that in the midst of your craziness. You can find that in the midst of your tangle, in your pain, in your inner debate, in your inner struggle. You can find it in there. When you find that, then you begin to, that's what you should be mindful of. Bear that in mind, that's the precious one. And there, as you take in the quality of that, breathe into it, open into it, 
make much of it, never lose it, return to it time and time again, that's going to begin to spread and suffuse the entire field. And without any particular effort, the turbulences begin to wane, and the thoughts begin to quiet, and things become softer. And bits in your body that seem really stuck start to gently melt. And sense contact begins to fade. And this is, you feel happy. And you've not got rid of anything. As such, you found the center. You've awakened intelligence and given it full license. Surrendered yourself to it. Surrendered yourself to it and let yourself receive it then you can meditate then you can develop that's how samadhi that's how I see it and when we when we contemplate how the Buddha taught you realize he didn't really teach many of the things that we currently do when we um, learn meditation Focus on a point here, a point there. It's not there. The Buddha didn't teach it. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it isn't the way the Buddha taught. He didn't say, be aware of your foot when you're walking. He didn't say, be aware of your nose when you're breathing. He said, just be aware of breathing, be aware of walking. And within that, it's up to you. you know, whatever you can find that still center, whatever takes you there, fine. But remember, it's got to be allowed and felt and encouraged to spread so there's no part of you that's left out. No part of you that's left out. It suffuses. This is jhana. It says there's no part of the entire body that is not suffused, drenched with happiness of the disengaged mind, the mind that's not clinging and stuck. Our process here, you know, where I'm doing it is to begin perhaps to get the body into a state where it could possibly open a little more fully. Get the heart to be less anxious, less demanding, less self-oriented, less boundaried, more sharing. You know, to establish a sense of mutual respect, care, loving kindness. So these things will, touching into these, dwelling in these, will encourage it. Dwelling in other topics will not encourage it. Developing, dwelling in self, what I want, what I am, what I'm not, compared with him or her, this will not develop anything useful. It will develop further disturbance and (laughs) disappointment. (laughs) So... (laughs) So finding that somewhere centering, and I'm suggesting you can find this in your own body, in a relaxed breathing, a sense of that, getting into the essence of that, not the physicality, but the immaterial quality of energy flowing through the body. Release yourself into that. Let it, the meaning of it, it's a given thing, it's a, Often thing, let the meaning of that also be felt. Let the experience of it radiate through your body. This will definitely be for your welfare and happiness.